And so let's read these verses. Amos chapter 9, verses 11 through 15. That day I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins, rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper, and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel. They shall rebuild their ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine. They shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land, and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. What Amos is talking about in these last few verses is what comes about on the other side of a long, restless night of waiting. In 2007, my youngest daughter was born, Laurel, in December of 2007. And about a month before Laurel was born, well, just let me just back up a second. During this period of time, uh, this church had not been planted for very long. And I had spent the previous few years, along with a few other people, Amy and Wes and Sarah and some other folks, sort of getting a Redemption Church planted and established and had spent a lot of time doing this. And, and while we were planting Redemption, I had a couple of part-time jobs where I worked to, to make money. And um, one of those jobs that I worked for, one of the companies that I worked for that provided the bulk of my income during the time that we were planning redemption, uh, I came to work about a month before Laurel was due to be born, about a month before Christmas, and I walked in the office, and uh, one of the owners met me and said, hey, just want you to know we, we closed the business on Friday afternoon. Um, you, no, you no longer have a job here. And... Um, So it's a month before Laurel was born. I don't have a job. I'm freaking out a little bit. The church certainly can't afford uh, to hire me at that point in time. Um, So Laurel's born, and you know how it is when a newborn comes, if you're a parent. um, There is no sleep for the first few weeks that that the kids are here or months that the kids are here. On top of that, every night for like two hours, Laurel would just scream. Like I would just sit in a chair and hold her and she would just scream for a couple of hours. Um, and then a couple of weeks after that, after she's born, uh, Natalie gets really, really sick and uh, like up all night coughing, just all night coughing. And then Laurel gets sick because Natalie's sick. And so like the first month of um, that Laurel is born, I'm dealing with the fact that I have to find a new job. The kids are sick. I can't sleep at night. Nobody's sleeping. Uh, it's just incredibly stressful. And I can remember lying in bed at night in the, in the brief amount of time that I was able to be there completely exhausted and unable to rest and sleep at the same time. Just wanting the night to be over because maybe tomorrow will be different. Just wanting the morning to come. Just wanting to see the daylight coming through the windows. And that's where we've gotten to in Amos. 
we're finally seeing the daylight come through the windows. It's a new day, a new thing that God is promising here. There's been a lot of darkness, a lot of judgment, and now we're seeing the sun come up. And what we just read in Amos chapter 9 is a sudden switch in the text that we've come upon. It's a promise of restoration, whereas the entire book up until this point has been a promise of judgment and exile. One scholar has called it a sudden switch to roses and lavender instead of blood and iron. And these verses that we read, we're really talking about two different things in Amos chapter 9 verses 11 through 15. Amos is really pointing to two different things. He's pointing to a new king and he's pointing to a new kingdom. Verse, verses 11 and 12 refer to the coming king. Verses 13 through 15 refer to the coming kingdom. In verse 11, there was this promise that God will restore the booth of David that is currently in disrepair. It's interesting that Amos uses the word booth instead of house of David or kingdom of David or something like that. But the important thing is that Amos is tying back to the covenant that God made with David. Do you know what that do you remember that covenant? It's important for us to grasp this because it points us straight to Jesus. Like Amos 9, 11 and 12 point straight to Jesus in 2 Samuel chapter 7, King David has finally taken Jerusalem. He's brought the ark of the covenant back to Jerusalem. He's setting up his kingdom and this new king, this new king David was the anointed king of Israel, anointed by God. And he was to reflect the righteous rule of God in Israel. He was to lead Israel in the faithful observance of the Mosaic law. He was to lead Israel to be a blessing to all the nations like God had told Abraham Israel would be. And in Second Samuel chapter 7, God tells David, your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And so throughout the rest of the Old Testament, Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Hosea and Zechariah and on and on and on, when you look at these prophets throughout the Old Testament, whenever God's people are being judged, when they are in exile, when they are about to go into exile, you constantly hear this promise that God will once again establish the throne of David. And this promise forms the expectation that God is going to send a Messiah to rescue His people. A deliverer. A king to sit on the throne of David forever. And so when we look at Amos chapter 9, and we look at Amos chapter 9 verse 11, we've got to recognize that Amos is pointing directly to Jesus. Directly. Verse 12 that I just read talks about that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name. Edom was a country, a, a nation that was right beside Israel, that was right beside God's people, that was in constant conflict with them. If you remember the story of Jacob and Esau in the Old Testament, um, Esau, I mean, uh, Edom are the descendants of Esau. And Israel and, and Israel and Edom are constantly in conflict. There's this Hatred that they share throughout their history. And it's not a one-to-one correlation, but it's not unlike what we see in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict today. It's just an ongoing 
conflict, an ongoing antagonistic relationship. But in verse 12, Amos says that one day, one day, that antagonistic relationship is going to end. That even Israel's enemies, even the Gentile nations will be blessed by this coming king. If you fast forward to Acts chapter 15 at the Jerusalem Council, when the early church is debating whether or not Gentiles can be a part of this thing that Jesus is doing, James quotes directly from Amos chapter 9, verse 11 and 12 to say that Jesus is the fulfillment of what Amos said. That all the Gentile nations are going to be blessed through this coming king. Verses 13 and 14 describe a time of unprecedented bounty. The picture that we just read is of fields so fertile and harvests so large that the reapers will still be gathering the grain and the fruits as the soil is being turned over for the next planting. It's the image of wine flowing downward from the hills. And throughout the Old Testament, the promised rule of this king in the line of David, the Messiah, is often characterized by unprecedented fruitfulness. Because the Messiah will restore the world to what it was before the fall. And there will be peace. Even down to peace between people and the earth. The full force of this picture is felt if we compare it back to Amos chapter 5 verse 11. Where Amos says that Israel's punishment for their sins will be that she will build great homes but not be able to live in them. And she will plant vineyards but not be able to drink their wine. And then in verse 15, Amos ends with this prophecy of restoration. A a promise that when the people of God are restored on the other side of the exile that they're about to experience, that they will never be judged again. The, The exile, the judgment, the destruction of the nation is upon them. That has been Amos's theme. But when the day of judgment is past, God's people are restored. It will be final. All will finally be well between God and man like God intended. On man's side, his rebellion is over. On God's side, creation has been liberated from its curse. All of its potential finally unleashed. God's justice will have been met and we will be right with God. Israel's judgment is coming about because of their sin. But in this final stage that Amos is promising... The penalty of sin will have been lifted. It's like being thirsty never again. No matter how much water you drink, you always get thirsty again at some point. And what Amos is promising is that one day the thirst is over and you never have to be thirsty again and things are exactly like God intended them. And so here's how I want us to leave Amos this morning. I want us to walk away from Amos. I want us to leave Amos understanding that King Jesus ultimately satisfies the justice of God that we see in Amos. And second, I want us to see that Jesus' kingdom is ultimately defined by justice. King Jesus ultimately satisfies the justice 
that God requires of His people. We've seen this over and over throughout the book of Amos because of their repeated sin, because of their idolatry, because of their injustice. God is going to send His people into exile. God is going to remove His presence from His people. And He's going to bring upon them what Amos calls the great day of the Lord. The great day of the Lord that is judgment and darkness. Amos constantly describes this coming day of judgment in terms of darkness. He says in chapter 5, Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? Toward the end of Amos, in Amos chapter 8, we even hear the Lord say this regarding the day of final judgment. I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. And in Amos 8.10, he says this, we're told that this cosmic darkening will be linked with morning that is like the morning for an only sun. Right? These passages are dramatic. And we know from history that God's people experienced some pretty horrific things at the hands of the Assyrians when this exile takes place. But the passage that I just referred to from Amos chapter 8, it's a pretty arresting passage in Amos' book and in Amos' prophecy because it describes precisely what took place when Jesus hung on the cross over 700 years later. The earth grew dark at noon for three hours. Jesus died on the cross. God's judgment and justice was satisfied. And an only son, God's only son, perished. The book of Amos closes with this deeply comforting promise of restoration that's going to come through the line of David that's ultimately fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus. It's why those crazy genealogy passages are present in Matthew and Luke to let us know that Jesus is in the line of David and on the cross, Jesus, the heir of David's kingdom, the king of the Jews, experienced the judgment of the prophetic day of the Lord for you and for I. For the people of Edom, like verse 12 describes, so that those who are enemies are invited in. Because Jesus satisfies the judgment and the justice of God that we see throughout the book of Amos. From the moment of his very first breath, Jesus marched toward the cross. Because God is unwilling to compromise his justice in order to deliver his forgiveness. It's vital to recognize and remember that the cross not only extends God's forgiveness, but it upholds His justice. And on the cross, grace and justice come together as Jesus, King Jesus, satisfies the justice of God forever. As Jesus, on our behalf, experiences the day of the Lord that we might be rightly related to God. That's where Amos 9 takes us. That's where Acts 15 takes us whenever James quotes 
Amos chapter 9, Jesus has done something for God's people. Jesus has satisfied the justice of God that God's forgiveness might be extended. In Acts chapter 15, just to hear it, this is what James said. He's quoting from Amos. After this I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. The promise in Amos of the king and the lineage of David that would, restore, that would restore the house of David. That promise was for those listening who would be faithful to God. And that promise gives you and I and Edom and all the other Gentile nations, all the other Gentile people access to God because of what Jesus has done. What Jesus has done for God's people, He's done for us. And it's right here in Amos. Of all places, It's right here at the end of Amos, pointing directly to Jesus. And so part of what we need to do this morning is remember what Jesus has done, satisfying the great day of the Lord. So let's remember that. But let's remember this as well. The kingdom that Jesus will establish will be defined and characterized by justice. When we normally think of justice, what is it that we think of? For a lot of people, the idea of justice usually revolves around something judicial. And whether justice is served or whether there's a miscarriage of justice. When we think of justice, we want to know that justice has been done. We think of high-profile cases like what we saw in the serial podcast that came out a few years ago. We think of somebody like Brock Turner, who sexually assaulted an unconscious woman but served very little time in prison for that heinous crime. We think of men like Philando Philando Castile who needlessly lost their lives. And we want to know that the right things have been done. Those are the kinds of things that occupy our minds because we want to see justice served. We want the right thing done. And that's certainly a component of justice, to have the right thing done in situations like that. And when the right thing is not done, we feel like we're drinking a glass of sand on a hot, sunny day. The idea of biblical justice extends beyond merely having the right thing done to making things the way they were intended to be. Right, Biblical justice, when God talks about justice, it's not just a reaction to something gone bad. And when things do go bad, we do want to see justice. And that's good and right. But ultimately, the bigger concept of biblical justice is that things need to be made the way they should be, the way God intended. And in the book of Amos, justice had been abandoned for the sake of wealth and privilege. And justice is still being abandoned today for the sake of wealth and privilege. And it should come as no surprise to any of us that fallen people 
and the systems and structures created by fallen people often abandon justice for the sake of wealth and privilege. But that's not how it is in Jesus' kingdom. If we look at the words of Amos chapter 9, verses, 11 through, um, verses 13 through 15 again, let me read them. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper, the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. The mountain shall drip sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel, and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine. They shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land, and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land I have given them, says the Lord your God. Right? Get that picture in your mind. It's a picture, a beautiful picture of what Jesus' kingdom will look like when the curse is no more. When everything is exactly as God intended it to be. When even the people and the earth are rightly related together. In Amos, up until this point, things were not like God intended. Right? The poor had been exploited. The, the needy had become indebted to the wealthy. There were systemic issues where a whole group of people organized society in a way that benefited them while keeping others indebted. And what is most noteworthy in Amos is that God is fed up with His people calling themselves by His name all while living lives of ease and comfort and luxury in the face of suffering by others. According to Amos, according to what we see in the book of Amos, injustice is leveraging, even by legal means, positions of privilege in a way that either exploits or ignores the suffering of others. The word justice in the Old Testament goes hand in hand with the word righteousness, which means to be in right standing with God and with others. And that means more than just being fair. It means levering positions of power and privilege and wealth for the benefit of others. I point that out because in the West, we tend to think of helping the needy as providing charity. When we think about helping those who are needy, who are poor, we think about it as charity. But according to Amos, injustice is turning a blind eye to those whom we are intended to bless. And God's people are judged and sent into exile for that very thing. One scholar has said that in the Old Testament, justice is not just putting down the oppressor, it's also helping to lift up the oppressed. Right? With the blessing of privilege comes the responsibility to leverage it for those who do not have it. Isn't that exactly what Christ has done for us? He's used His position of privilege to give us access to the Father. To be rightly related to our heavenly Father and in Jesus' kingdom in the new heaven and the new earth, He's still using that position of privilege for His people right down to the abundance 
that Amos 9, 13 through 15 promises God's people a judgment that never ends. It looks different than the stinginess and oppression and injustice of Amos. It looks like what God intended. And so if Jesus uses his position of privilege on behalf of us, and so if God intends justice to be a defining characteristic of his kingdom, when then what does that mean for you and me as God's people? That means we cannot celebrate and proclaim the message of God's grace while we do what God would never do. Close our eyes to injustice. We must not refuse to acknowledge and act upon the injustices of our world. The cross forbids me. It forbids us to close our eyes to any form of injustice, whether it be personal or corporate or governmental or ecclesiastical or systemic. We cannot. We must not. There should be no community that is a more present active and vocal advocate for justice than the community that preaches the gospel of the cross of Jesus Christ. There's this false dichotomy in American Christianity today that says you either have to be about the gospel or you have to be about social justice, but the two things don't go together. And that is a mistake. It is a theological mistake. It is a biblical mistake. It is a mistake of epic proportions. And we are no different than the people of Amos if we believe that way. Because we believe the gospel, because we proclaim the gospel, because we believe that what Jesus did changes us, because we believe that Jesus died and made us right with God, then we must care about what God cares about. Because Jesus died to satisfy God's justice so that God's forgiveness could be given. We must be a people who are passionate about both the gospel and justice. And they're not all that different. The gospel saves us. The gospel defines us. It makes us into a people. And it sends us on mission to make disciples. And we must absolutely cling to and celebrate and proclaim the gospel of Jesus. But the gospel calls us to align our hearts with the heart of God. To lift up the poor. To care for widows and orphans. And if you leave Amos without realizing that God is calling his people to align themselves with his heart, then you're missing the point of Amos. So let's ask ourselves the questions that we have hopefully been asking ourselves all along through the book of Amos. Who is God? What has God done? What does that make me? How then should I live? Who is God in Amos? Well, he's the just and righteous judge of his people. He's a father to the poor and oppressed and the widow and the orphan. The God who rescued and set aside a people to be a blessing. And a God who calls those people in response to live in light of what God has done. What has God done? Well, in Amos, he's brought judgment on his people. But in Amos chapter 9, he's pointing to a Savior. He's promising a kingdom. And the judgment that is upon 
his people isn't meant to destroy them. It's meant to redeem them. Because God's discipline is always redemptive. He's promised a Savior and He's given us Jesus. And Amos points to that. And what does that make me? Well, because of Jesus, it makes me someone who is rightly related to God. A child of God. Someone who has been rescued by Jesus. Not because I deserve it, but because of what Christ has done. And how should I live? Well, my heart should be aligned with the heart of God. On issues related to justice. On issues related to the oppressed. Right? Amos is a clear call for active engagement with the poor and the afflicted and the injustices of our world wherever they may exist. Proverbs chapter 31. We probably don't think of Proverbs chapter 31 in terms of justice. Proverbs 31 is an oracle that King... Lemuel's mother spoke to him. And this is part of what she says. Open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of those, for the, for the rights of all who are destitute. Open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and the needy. Open your mouth for the mute, those who can't speak for themselves, for the rights of all who are destitute. Open your mouth, Judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and the needy. Folks, that is the heart of God. And it must be our heart as well. We're going to enter into a time of response like we do every Sunday. The point of our time of response is to give us an opportunity to respond to what God is speaking to us and doing in our hearts and minds. That's going to happen in a couple of ways. The band is going to come back up, lead us in some songs, and give us an opportunity to worship by singing. We have an opportunity to worship by giving. There's a giving basket in the back. There's also some instructions back there on other ways to give. During this time as well, we have an opportunity to sit where we are, to reflect, to pray, to deal with whatever it is that God would have us deal with. And we have an opportunity to take communion. Um, you can come up these side aisles over here, uh, take the bread, dip it in the wine or juice, and so remember the body of Christ that has been given for us and the blood of Christ that has been shed for us. The reason we do communion, the reason we take communion on a regular basis is that Scripture tells us when we do it, we're remembering what Jesus has done and we're proclaiming to one another that we believe it. And so we do that corporately here to remember what Christ has done, and to proclaim that we believe the gospel. I'm going to pray for us and we'll move on with that. God, thank you for this reminder from your word that our hearts must be aligned with your heart. God, thank you for this reminder from your word that you have given us a way to be rightly related to you through Jesus. Thank you that Amos 9 points us directly to your salvation and what you have done for our on our behalf. God, thank you that Amos chapter 9 points us to an incredible kingdom that you have promised under Jesus. God, as we spend our last few moments together this morning, I pray that you would continue to be at work in our hearts and minds. You would continue to draw us to yourself, that Jesus would continue to be lifted high. That we would be drawn to you because of Jesus. 
Amen.